The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome to the Rebel Podcast. Nate. Chris, Garage Mahal, Wetsy, Knobs and Dials, all up in here. It's great. I don't know. All <laughs> it is great. All up in here is an odd phrase I've never heard you use, but... It's bad radio, but you had yeah, to see... The I hand gesture the, made sense. Made sense. I was like doing the, the finger weird Rodeo, wheel. the finger rodeo. I don't know. Yeah. Like, but it's all because we're all up in this place. That's right. I feel, like, I feel like our entertainment value would go way up if people could see us and not just hear us, right? That CrossPolitik got that right, right? So you can go and listen to their podcast or you can go and watch their podcast. Just trust us. We're really fun to watch. <laughs> I, I fid- Basically, the way this breaks down a lot is I fidget a ton. You do, actually. And Nate, like, you always I'm have always, something to play with. I'm playing with everything. Um, and Nate talks with his hands like you wouldn't believe. He's like... <laughs> it's like Origami in the in the sky, yeah. I'm like, he's kung fu fighting the air. What he's, what he's not going to do. Anybody who's ever seen him preach live knows what I'm talking about. Um, but like, there's hand gestures off the charts. And then Dave... I'm, it's how I burn calories while I preach. <laughs> Yeah, so uh what was I I had a good segue in my head and then you totally oh it's, yeah, yeah, just like Cross Politic, who are part of the Fight Laugh Feast Network. We are on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. See, it was a good good segue. That would have worked. Yeah, go download the app, find the Fight Laugh Feast folks. We're part of that network. It's all good. <laughs> I've just been thrown off. There's great stuff. Aaron Rock just posted a good uh, podcast. You should go listen to it. Listen to all the stuff on the uh app. Today, we had some like physical labor before we came to Garage yes, Mahal. Yeah. And so now Nate's hit, hitting the time where he's like, he needs a nap. like Or a coffee. <laughs> like, I could do one of two things. Yeah, <laughs> Nap or coffee. I actually don't do naps, eh? You're not a napper? No, I'm not a napper. Because part of it is, I'm the guy who's like, if I stop for a bit, I'm out. Like, oh, I can't, can't nap restart? for like, yeah, I can't nap for like 20 minutes, half an hour. If I fall asleep, I'm out. And I'm no good to anybody. I'm grumpy. I'm, I'm the whole thing. So I'm just the guy. I have to keep going until I'm ready to stop. I've tried. And it, trust me, you, you know, Sunday afternoons, you preach a couple of sermons, you you head home. The, you know, the kids, usually by the time we get to Sunday, they've had a busy weekend and everything. We let them veg and we hang out. It's so hard. not Like I usually have to get up and kind of keep moving around. Yeah. I didn't know that. You, we've been friends for over a decade and I didn't know you're not a napper. I am not a napper. It's probably because you're napping and you just assume I'm napping too. Because when we spend Sunday <laughs> afternoons together, you often do nap. I do nap. It's not that, that I need the nap. It's that I'm a drifter. And so like, I'll just be sitting there and like, if I stop fidgeting, I'll fall asleep. That's just the way this works. <laughs> Fair enough. Now that you've gotten some insight into our sleeping patterns, <laughs> what are we going to talk about today, Chris? In reference to a lot of feedback we got from last week's podcast, but also just like, it's a question that comes up every time we're having dinner with anybody is, so you're post-millennial. How do you rationalize 
first of all, that's tell me right about now. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we did that episode a couple weeks ago. Uh, but like, mostly it's like, then like, well, how do you ra- rationalize like everything that's happening in the world today? Right. How do you say the world's getting better? And so we basically would just wanted to like, almost like clear the air a little bit of like what we're actually saying we actually think the next couple of years are going to look like. Yeah. We're going to play profit a little bit. and <laughs> Even so though we don't believe in, yeah. in this kind of modern day prophecy. Yeah, there's no point of that. But uh, we're basically going to like say what we kind of think the world is going to happen over the next years. But there's hope because obviously we're very open to the fact that there will be victory on this side of glory. Right. So the first thing that we want to say is that being post-millennial does not mean that you believe the world is getting better and better with no breaks in that trajectory, right? It's like sanctification, right? Two steps forward, one step back. Sanctification is moving in a particular direction. It's becoming more like Christ. But as we all know, there are times, right? You go through, there are times in your sanctification process when God reveals to you more that needs to be worked on, right? So, you know, you'll oftentimes you'll, you'll get a guy who's worked really hard at integrating Christian discipline into his life and spiritual disciplines in order to become a kind of man who a godly woman would want to marry. And then you get married and suddenly you're, you're sharing your life with somebody. And after the honeymoon phase, you start to realize that God's using that other person as part of your sanctification And so suddenly that can cause friction. When you start having kids, you get less sleep, all that kind of stuff. There's lots of different places in your life that can start feeling like a sanctification step back, right? But ultimately God is moving you in a direction and sometimes sanctification is painful, right? Yeah, if you didn't want to use such a like a sensitive example of your of your marriage, you could just say <laughs> no. like it's basically like I had it explained to me like it's chess. In chess, like to win the game of chess, you have to lose pieces. And so like mm. even though it looks sometimes bad, oh I just lost my bishop, I just lost my horse, my horse knight. I mean, um, your rookie, <laughs> me. But like to it's win you've been the playing game with Quinn, I haven't right? played. Yeah. I haven't played. So I've been playing with your daughter. Um, but like to win the game, you don't go flawless. Like you're gonna sacrifice pieces which looks like defeat when it's, when it's happening, but it's to win the actual prize, which is to take the king, right? Right. Um, so, so we like, can all agree that sanctification is that sort of sometimes two steps forward, one step back, three yeah. steps forward, one step back. And that's what we believe Christian progress looks like as well. That's what we believe in, in terms of post-millennialism. And fun fact for everybody who's listening, do you actually know, Chris, where the tipping point was? We always say when people are like, oh, like, I've never heard that before. Like, you guys are, are part of a minority. I always like to say, like, historically speaking, more of the church has been on our side of post-millennialism than on any other eschatological train. And I know some of the all-millennials, they'll, would, argue, that. they'll <laughs> argue that point, but I'm happy to tell them why I think they're wrong. Do you know where the tipping point was in terms of when most of the church that was predominantly post-millennial, and like, even though people would argue the point I just made, anybody who's actually done their homework can agree that the vast majority of the Puritans were post-millennial. You know, that's one of the main thrusts of, of Joe Boot's Mission of God, where he kind of is saying, you know, people have adopted Puritan theology and soteriology, but they've missed Puritan missiology and eschatology, and that's, that's a vital point of what they did. Anyway, do you know where the tipping point was? I, I would think the Great Depression and World War One. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so in Ian Murray's book, The Puritan Hope, where this is where I got this, that. This is where, that's what he talks about. He talks about how the Puritans essentially had this eschatological hope. They were post-millennial. That's what drove them to do the things that they did. But there's a chapter in there, I think it's the seventh chapter, called The Eclipse of the Hope. And there he talks about how basically there are a few things that get combined here. And I'll, I'll put some of my own stuff in here, but... What happens is you have, through some very charismatic revival services, you have the introduction of dispensationalism. 
And then you have the Schofield Reference Bible, which was the first Bible to actually put study notes on the pages of Scripture. Schofield was heavily influenced by some of these charismatic dispensational influences. So the first kind of study Bible that had the study notes that interpreted the passages on the same pages with those passages made it to print right at the turn of the century. So at the turn of the century, there's all kinds of societal changes as well. You have people leaving the home in order to work. You have women kind of losing their place in the home because suddenly education and industry and economy is outside of the home. So you have all these things happening in societal changes. And then you have the First World War. You have the Great Depression. And this is where suddenly, so now you have a dispensational influence in the Schofield Reference Bible. You have some cultural unrest with some of the changes that have been happening at home. And then you have kind of world disaster in terms of World War I followed by the Great Depression. And so what actually was the tipping point of making the church not as post-millennial as it once was, had nothing to do with exegesis of the text, had everything to do with outside influences of people looking around the world and asking the same question that we're going to answer in this podcast. And that is, how can you believe that Christ is victorious in history when this is what's going on around us. And that's what we get asked all the time, right? And so last week, we were talking a little bit about the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and some of the the difficult things. And we have a lot of friends. Our church has grown immensely over the last year, and it's grown with people from all different walks of church life and eschatology and theology. So we have a lot of friends now who are dispensational, a lot of uh, pan-millennialists, right? Like it'll all pan pan out out in the end, yeah. But you have a lot of people who are simply asking the question as they hear, I guess, the post-millennial hope that comes out in the, the ministry at Crossroads, as they hear us talk on the podcast, as they go back through older resources, and they say, how can you believe that the world is getting better when dot, 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 fill in the blank? So how do you answer that question usually? How, well, like, how do Actually, I... do we so, want to do that first or do we want to like play profit like you said? We can do either, whatever you prefer. Okay, but I asked you the question. So, how would you answer that question? The question of like, how do I how do I look outside of and say it's getting better? I think you answered it kind of like inadvertently, saying the same thing in terms of the way we got to the point of like, oh, the world's always going to get progressively worse is by applying outside to the scripture, and I think that's just a dangerous game to play. Absolutely. And it's funny because like even everybody typically in our circles or like almost everybody is from Protestant background. Where did the Protestant background start at the Reformation of what was the point of the Reformation? Looking in the scriptures and applying what the scripture says, not what has Absolutely. been taught. So we all recognize that that's the proper thing to do. But we, for some bizarre reason with eschatology, it's the one time we stop doing that. We look outside in rather yeah. than inside out. I just simply point out, it was like, okay, where, when you look at the text, does it ever indicate what you're seeing today is the end of days or there are people who will be like blood moons and all this stuff. And I'm just like, okay, well show me that in the text. And that's where it falls down because you used to use this argument all the time. um, When we would used to argue about other things a long time ago, we would be like, whoever leaves the Bible first loses the argument. That's right. And it's like, so like, okay, well let's, let's have that talk, but let's look at, look in scripture. And then I just simply also point out that like, where are we right now? We're in Southwestern Ontario, 2000 years after the upper room, non-Jewish people. And we're talking, what are we doing right now? We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about Christ. We're talking about his kingdom expanding. That's proof in itself of post-millennial theology because the kingdom has grown since the mustard seed. It's now not covering the whole earth, but it's on its way. And 2000 years have passed and this hasn't been diminished. And I would just say like, how many Christians have lived since the upper room? It started with conservatively 11. 
it's progressed. And so like just logically playing out history, you can say that this is what's happening. And so, but I would say at times, like, look, I think we're farther along the line of a good gospel witness than we were in 1400 before well, the Reformation. And I think that that's the the key, right? Like we're so self-centered that we we tend to look at things and even just the ebbs and flows of our own life. What does Ecclesiastes tell us? You're a vapor. You're here today, gone tomorrow in the grand scheme of things, right? And so we ought not to look at the world in, in 10 year or even 20 year or even generational terms, right? We have to look at the history of the world in, in bigger increments. If you look at the history of the world in 500-year increments, you can't actually make the case that things are getting worse because they've gotten progressively better you know, across the globe. When you just look at the, the paganism that was rooted in all cultures, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I get it. There's paganism going yeah, on in our governments. Yeah, right? we're not like, there yet. Like We have yeah. not arrived. But in 500-year increments, there's no doubt that the gospel influenced the number of Christians, right? The quality of life for people around the world, the amount of diseases that have been eradicated, all that kind of stuff. Like, we talked a little bit about the political landscape last week. And, I mean, now, so you have the conservatives and the liberals, you know, here and all the shades in between. You have them arguing over how to care for the poor, not whether they should care for the poor, right? In Rome, they didn't care for the poor because the poor were left. The poor were, were weak. The poor were a drain on society. They were killed, right? It was, the, it was actually the influence of Christians who are commanded by their God to care for the orphan and care for the widow and care for the destitute and care for the poor and the needy and the outcast. It was actually Christianity that changed the world's mind on this. And so it's actually the gospel going forth and creating sort of Western civilization is part of what makes the debate now. How do we care for the poor? What's the best strategy to employ to pay for the poor, right? Trudeau mistakenly wants to do it through a general basic income, right? A more conservative mindset would be to, quite frankly, equip the churches and individual households and drop minimum wage so that people can have jobs and work their way up and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's not about whether, it's but which way do we best care for the poor? That That's evidence of the gospel taking root in culture and why the world is better now. Okay. So we believe well, that. Sorry. Yeah, one last thing on that on that too is like just in terms of like the eschatology, like postmillennial is the only one that isn't fully realized right now, right? So like dispensational is generally always like, oh, this is the world is terrible. Christ has got to come back right now because their eschatology is already fully realized. It's already a terrible world. Whereas ours is the trajectory, like you're saying, like the world is cl- clearly better now than it was 500 years we're the only one that's not fully realized yet because right. it's still it's still working towards so that's just another little caveat that i wanted to yeah, yeah no absolutely uh, and so. when you look at the world and that's your basis as you said instead of looking at scripture first right for what does the world look like when christ comes back and we can have that argument because i know lots of people will use first thessalonians 4 which i don't think is about the end of the world but I think that instead of looking outward and saying what's going on around us, we're looking to scripture first. Whereas I think you'll always kind of find what you're looking for. And so from a dispensational framework, you're always going to be able to look around and say, oh man, things are really bad because we always only know our own suffering. But that's what has led to every single Christian generation thinking that they are living in the last days. What I think every dispensationalist needs to look at is, oh, why did my parents think that they were living at the end of the world? Why did my great-grandparents think that they were living at the end of the world? And you can go back for as far as dispensationalism has had a grip on the church. Every generation thought that they were the last generation, and they've all been wrong. So there's a man I love at our church, love him to death. But I've walked through, I think now three, and he's got a fourth in his mind, 
end time scenarios where, you know, he's looking at stars or he's looking at writing on the wall or interpreting some passage in Ezekiel or whatever, and why he thinks we're in the last year or last whatever. And I've, I've walked through, we've walked past three dates that he thought would have been, whether it's the rapture or whatever. And I keep saying to him, like, at what point do enough of these failed attempts, these failed prophecies lead you to re-examine your entire worldview? Okay, so we don't believe that the world's just getting worse and worse, but the world right now in our current context seems like it's pretty bad. So what is it that we as post-millennialists believe the next five to 10 years is going to look like? We'll even go 50 years. What do we think it's going to look like? And how do we fit that into our post-millennialism? Yeah. Outlook, not very good. <laughs> so, <laughs> Spoiler alert, we're not doing so okay, hot. Let me preference why I think that's okay, though. Big idea. I'm just going to throw out my cards here. I'm not a prophet. Don't stone me if this doesn't happen. But I actually, I actually think Western culture is falling. We're seeing the ends of a society that's been built on just progress the whole time. And we're now actually hitting just population-wise, all these other things of a time where we actually just can't keep the model that we've built continuing so things have to break down i'm actually going to say as a post millennial guy i'm saying amen to that yeah good um good so like, that's great because i'm not trying to build western culture i want christ's kingdom to be amen. the one that, take, that takes over so like we actually have to get out of the way and there's that that verse and i know it doesn't specifically apply to eschatology about like well you can't put new wine into old wineskins because it'll burst it i look at that with culture well you can't have a theocratic kingdom take over the globe with the pagan systems that we have in place. We need those systems to crash. And so I say, bring it. Like I want yeah. these things to happen. So like big strokes, I actually think it's going to continually get worse. And I actually think the church is in a good spot to be like, great. I'm not saying the church should get worse. The more the systems of our government fail, the bigger the opportunity is for the church to fill yeah, the void. Totally. You mentioned the poor earlier. It was never the government's job to do welfare and us to like do all that. That was the church's responsibility. Yeah. We kicked it to them because truthfully, you mentioned, we mentioned earlier, we sent all of our men overseas yeah. and what ended up happening is, well, then all the women who were doing the faithful thing, raising their children, all of a sudden were forced into work. And what yeah. happened was like, well, as soon as you get an entire doubling your workforce in the world, well, you're never going to put Pandora's box back lid back on the box right so what happened is like well then that happened and then world war ii happened and it was just like now we're in a perpetual cycle this is just the new normal and i think we need to see culture fall particularly when i said that like western culture i'm meaning like western europe north america canada the states i think we need our empire to realize we're not the, the empire that's going to last forever yep every empire in the history of the world has thought they were the empire that lasted forever yeah was it the greeks that were or the syrians that were thought they were the eternal empire they they called it was that rome i don't remember one yeah, of them rome, literally called themselves the eternal empire yeah rome did do that yeah and it's like well no that's that's that false because christ is the eternal that's empire. right um, so yeah that's why and, i think big strokes is going to happen what that looks like in the interim not great for us yeah, and, and I would agree with that. So I, I do think that we're going to see just we, we've built a, an economy based on debt. We've seen an economy where we have not tied our liability and our debt to anything tangible. We have a government that keeps printing money, keeps giving handouts. We're getting to the point where just the interest on our debt as a province and as a nation We'll hit the tipping point where we'll be paying more in interest than we are and we'll just never dig ourselves out of it. So I think that there's going to be a financial collapse. Like, I really do think that this stuff is going to happen, right? We've been talking about the world wars. When you look at Germany after World War I, I think you're, you see an economy that, you know, 
that's literally where the the phrase not worth the paper it's printed on came from because uh, the German currency took such a nosedive that they couldn't actually print money onto paper because the paper was worth more than the currency it was being printed on. And so I think that we are heading for some financial collapse. I think that we're heading for political collapse and all that kind of stuff. And this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, right? We read a Bible all the time where cultures and civilizations and countries and nations have fallen over and over and over again. Canada, the U.S., we're no different. These nations are not going to last forever. And so I'll say how that fits into my post-millennialism in just a moment. But I want to start by saying, so I actually think that we ought to be raising our kids preparing them for hardship. And I think it doesn't matter if you flee to Florida, where DeSantos seems to be the new Messiah. I don't think that anywhere is going to escape what's coming. And so I think that the best thing that we can do is focus on making sure that the church is being the city on the hill that it's meant to do. Because I think we're heading for dark times, and the darker the world is around us, the brighter the light of the gospel shines right? Post-Tenebrous Lux. And so I think that what we should be focusing on is the church being the church, being outreach-oriented, evangelism-oriented, get ready to feed the poor, get ready to care for the orphans and the widows, because I think that that need is going to be massive. So churches need to get really good, take care of your own first, figure out how you're going to take care of your own first, and out of the overflow for showing Christ's love and familial affection for one another, invite in the outside world into the safety of the church, into the safety of the gospel. In order to prepare for this, I think that Christians ought to be getting their loved ones out of long-term care facilities, bring them back into the home, care for them there. Christians should get their kids out of government schools, homeschool them, I think all that kind of stuff. And I think that Christians should make wise financial decisions. Absolutely. We need to prepare our kids. I think churches need to be ready to move underground. We saw during COVID, that was the only way some churches were able to stay open. So I do think we're heading for a few decades or more of hardship. Now, how that fits into my post-millennialism is actually quite simple. Like you said earlier, Chris, the fact that we are not building the United States of America We are not building the dominion of Canada. We are not building the Roman Empire. We are building Christ's kingdom. That means that when we get to the end of days, God is going to see to it that no one nation, no one people group can lay claim to victory, right? Throughout the history of the world, we saw obviously it started in the Middle East, right? Thomas took the gospel pretty far east. Paul obviously took it pretty far north. And you saw the gospel take root in various areas around the Middle East, You see, obviously, during the Middle Ages and the time of the Reformation, you see a stronghold in sort of Europe. You see the time after the Protestant Reformation, you see some amazing things in Scotland and England and Germany, and they all sent missionaries. Where did the Puritans come from? That's where the Puritans came from, and then they came and they planted America, right? And in America and in Canada, nations that were sort of built on on Judeo-Christian values and, and Christian principles, we saw it begin to thrive over here. For years now, we've been sending missionaries where? To South Africa, South America, and to China. Right now, while we are in a Western decline now, where are we seeing the gospel flourish? There are like 300 million Christians in China right now. There's revival going on in South America right now. Christians are coming to the Lord in South Africa like you wouldn't believe. And so what I believe you're going to see the decline here and you're going to see the incline there. Eventually, China is going to be sending missionaries back over here because we'll be in shambles. So I think that what you're seeing here is that God is using all the various nations— And they'll all have their time.
time in the sun, but at the end of it, no one nation, no one people group is going to be able to lay claim to gospel victory. We're all going to have to say, God used us and God used you. We had our ups, we had our downs, but the kingdom kept thriving. So I think that that's how I view what's going on right now. And I'll give a quick little analogy. I'm sure I've used this on the podcast before, but I know we have a lot more listeners now, so maybe they haven't heard me use this example on here. But think of a Rubik's Cube, right? And the idea is like, when you're solving a Rubik's Cube, I think you can do them, right, Chris? You know the... I know, but I know a guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always, I always, uh, I always solved it by peeling off the stickers. They don't make them with stickers anymore. But, but if you ever seen somebody do the Rubik's cube, it, it's basically like there's certain patterns that you follow, which is why people can do them in like 30 seconds or whatever, like or less. I've seen people do it. It's because they know the patterns and they know how to get you know something from one side of the thing to the other. But what inevitably happens is they actually, let's just say, they start with yellow and they get the whole yellow side. And as a person who doesn't really know what's going on, you're looking at it being like oh you got one well in order to get the whole thing they have to break that yellow side if you've ever seen it they do one side at a time and so it's like boom 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 boom, boom, boom. all of a sudden they have yellow and red and you're like oh it's looking good but then they have to break that side again you might be like oh what are you doing you had two of them no, no, no i gotta break that side in order to get the blues i gotta break the blue side in order to get the whites and so you do the whole thing and by the end of it what you see is all of a sudden they all flip into place none of the sides look complete And then all of a sudden they get that last turn and boom, the whole Rubik's Cube is done. And I think that that's what's going on here is that God, through the ups and the downs and the evil empires that rise and fall and the dictators and the wannabe kings and the failures of the church and and the the rise and fall of, of Christian nations, God is just breaking that Rubik's Cube. And what does 1 Corinthians 15 say? That at the end, right, that Christ comes off his throne, he reigns there until all of his enemies are placed underneath his feet in victory. Then he gets up to judge the last enemy, death, himself personally. It says, then comes the end. When what? He delivers the kingdom to God. He delivers it to God as a finished project. He gives him the completed Rubik's Cube. And I think that if you think about it in that direction, then you realize that all of the ebbs and flows, the moments where we're saying, God, what are you doing? Like all through COVID, I'm sure there's tons of Christians going like, God, what are you up to in COVID? It might have looked like Western civilization was doing okay, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. What was really going on is God needed to break that side in order to do something else because his kingdom growing throughout history ultimately is the trajectory of history, not the rise and the fall of Canada, the U.S. or anywhere else. Amen. Which is how we can look at all the bad things in the world and still be post-millennial. Amen. Because we understand that God is like, as you said, breaking aside now, yeah. which temporarily for us might... Seems painful. And yeah. might become very painful. You Absolutely. might end up in jail. Yeah. But on the grand scheme of history... He's working all things out to be the perfect cube that he hands back. And I know I said this last week during the podcast because it's one of the things that, that led us to do this episode. But I just want to reiterate, I know the temptation for parents who want to protect their children from hardship. I understand that. But I also want to remind you that there is no safer place to be than in God's will. And so I think that Christian parents in particular, and Christian husbands as well, who are leading their wives and leading their homes, they need to have faith enough that God is doing the Rubik's Cube, that they are willing to live during the time of a broken side, and raising their kids as dragon slayers at a time where there's a lot of dragons flying around. And I don't think that we should lament that. I don't think that we should be upset about that. I think that that's actually a wonderful opportunity. 
you're not raising your kids to be careful men and women. You're raising them to be courageous and faithful men and women. And the careful people come along after that, as Doug Wilson says, and who knows what careful person (laughs) a few generations from now will write the biography of your faithful children. So I think that's great. Let's leave it there. Yeah, let's leave it there. We'll see you again next week. Peace. Peace.